Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from annihilation. Movie presidents, now more than ever. President Bill Pullman in Independence Day with a little pep talk for the men and women about to head into battle against the alien hordes. Alien attacks is the subject of this week's top five. Fighting for freedom from annihilation, enough stakes for you there, Adam? That works for me. That top five and our review of Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant, ahead on Film Spotting. Last week, we celebrated the life and work of director Jonathan Demme with a top five devoted to his best on-screen moments. This week, Alien Attacks. Because, (laughs) of course, that's how we roll here on (laughs) Film Spotting. And, you know, we spent all that time talking about how diverse and eclectic Jonathan Demme's filmography was. I don't remember any aliens. No, in any of his films. he had so, not yet gotten to his alien movie. Maybe that's it. He did start out making Roger Corman mm-hmm, this pictures, is true. though. So he certainly was familiar with genre movies, but I don't recall any aliens. We are going to review Alien Covenant this week, but this week's top five will not be confined to attacks by just those aliens, or actually any of the aliens from that series. We'll get to that as we get to the top five here later in the show. We are opening it up, though, to all manner of alien attacks on humans, but specifically the attack itself, not so much the aliens themselves, because, of course, we already did that top five, Josh, and, you know, we're going to recycle some topics over the years. This is what happens when you have 500-plus top five lists in your archive. That's right. Back in 2014, we did share our top five things from space that came to destroy us. We promised to offer some new titles and some new aliens this time around. Hey, if we are redundant, that's only because the Alien franchise is redundant. This is what... Number five? No, six. Six. Is it six? Yeah. Alien Covenant notes. That's what we're going to review next. You've all sacrificed so much to be here and be a part of this thing we're doing. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work. 
and your courage. We're making history here. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. A few hours after we saw Alien Covenant, a sequel, that is, Stick With Me Here, part of a series of prequels, I caught this exchange between two critics on Twitter prompted by a third critic who would proclaim Covenant to be, quote, the worst alien movie, unquote. Critic one, the movie is awesome. Critic two, I'm so confused by these pans. What do these people want? Critic one, they want, quote, an alien movie, unquote, which has never been a thing. Critic two, extremely true. And seen. Forget the emphatic qualifier, though. Is it even true? I mean, having seen five of the six entries in the series, I've still yet to make time for 1997's Alien Resurrection. I recognize that Covenant's predecessor, also directed by Ridley Scott, the philosophically grandiose Prometheus, is unique in tone, style, and content from, say, James Cameron's muscular anti-corporate aliens, which itself was unique from Scott's original suffocating sci-fi horror mashup. But no such thing as an alien movie? I'm sure there's some nuance to this thesis I'm naively overlooking because I can tell you the moment where I more or less stopped thinking of Covenant as its own special creature. About 40 minutes in, when the first person steps in the wrong spot and is unknowingly infected by an alien spore. Of course, there was already plenty that was familiar leading up to this point. Broadly speaking, there's a crew that includes an android named Walter, clearly some relative of Prometheus's David, played by Michael Fassbender, and Catherine Watterson's Daniels, who, like Sigourney Weaver's Ripley before her, is the smartest, most sensible, and resourceful member of the group, on a ship with a mission to start a new colony that runs into chest-bursting trouble when they investigate a signal coming from a closer, unknown, but promising planet. Throw in a little to quarantine or not to quarantine, a terrible storm wreaking havoc, an OS named Mother, an insider with dubious motivations, and, well, you probably get the idea. So I have to ask, Josh, did you enjoy this alien movie because of or in spite of all the ways it feels like an alien movie? Did Scott and company offer enough new developments following that fateful footstep to justify the journey? I did enjoy this alien movie. That's probably the place to start because profusely I did not enjoy Prometheus. So I was glad to be back on board a little bit here, but it was a little bit. Can I say I enjoyed Alien Covenant as a Michael Fassbender movie and leave it as that? Sure. Because really, to me, that's what this is. It's a very slow start to this thing, despite those nods to the previous Alien films that we can recognize and perhaps be intrigued or excited by. But really, until this dual role that he has comes to the forefront Mm -hmm. and Fassbender essentially gets to play a game of tennis against himself, there's not much going on here. There wasn't much for me. I think he gives such a clever and um, funny Mm -hmm. performance and an unexpected performance in a lot of ways that he redeems the film single-handedly. There are some other things I like. There are other things that I see as trailings from Prometheus. I almost wonder if Scott is sick 
of making alien movies and he's trying to take this thing into a little bit of a new direction because he's primarily there's a new screenwriter here from Prometheus, but it does at the beginning have some of these same grand philosophizing Mm -hmm. gestures that I found to be a problem with Prometheus. There's a little bit of the mythologizing that was the main problem with Prometheus. So you get that sense here, but eventually it does turn into more of a, what I consider an alien movie. I talk about those first two, which I think are very streamlined, very sleek. Mm -hmm. They are what they are, and they're not going to get too complicated beyond that. The wonderful thing is that both of them, and I think for sure we can say Alien because we revisited that recently, allow more interesting ideas to bubble up amongst the action and the scares. But really what they're setting out to do is offer basic genre thrills. And that's what I think of as an Alien movie. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that here in Alien Covenant, um, but that's not maybe the best thing about it. The worst thing about it is when it does lend itself to those Prometheus wanderings and really, the thing that saves it is Fassbender. Hmm. I actually wondered if you'd go back and revisit Prometheus because I really you sometimes to. do that. Yeah, I wish you, I had again, the time. Yeah, do your homework sometimes for these reviews in ways that I don't. But I'm really glad I didn't. And I'm really glad that I feel like I've more or less forgotten just about everything that I took away initially from my experience with Prometheus. At this point, all I know is that I really enjoyed it and you really didn't enjoy it. And I was doing a little digging today, just looking on the internet and seeing that I had this bad taste in my mouth with that film, I think because you were so strongly against it. And it's like 72% on Rotten Tomatoes made $400 million. I mean, I think there's maybe a sense that movie was a bigger disappointment than it actually was, which isn't to say yeah, that's, there that's weren't some mixed to hear reactions. That. There is that sense, but, you know, there's a sequel. So <laughs> there is. So obviously but it did its job. For me, I, I wasn't comparing it in any way. And I enjoy that experience more when I'm not doing that. In terms of the slow start, I'll say that as much as I enjoyed, and we'll talk about it here in just a second, the dual role and Fassbender, and I agree completely, he's the best thing ultimately about this film. The slow start is what I enjoyed most about it. Maybe Hmm. that's because I enjoy that stuff. I kind of enjoy just the getting to meet the crew a little bit, the setup. I enjoy the philosophizing, which I enjoyed in Prometheus. So that all worked for me, and it really is at that point where... They step on that that egg and the black ooze comes up that I was already starting to wane in my interest a little bit. And then I realized that, okay, we're more or less going to be on autopilot for the rest of this film. And it turned out for me that was the case. Now, we'll say about Fassbender, he is so good here as Walter slash David. And everybody we've seen has talked about this, so we're not spoiling anything. It's all over IMDb. We won't get into too many details about the exact nature of David's character here, but he is playing a dual role. And he's so good that I can definitely tell you I'm not sharp enough on one viewing more than a week ago to discern how he exactly goes about creating those two unique performances. I can just tell you that he pulls it off. Haircut aside, you know Walter from David anytime one of them's on screen because of something he is doing vocally and physically I don't know what it is, Josh. Maybe you were more in tune to it and maybe you took better notes, but it's undeniable. At the same time, it's so, so subtle. It's really a masterful performance. And of course, I go in, of all people, expecting a great Michael Fassbender performance, but I was even surprised by how much fun it is seeing both of those characters play against each other on screen in this film. And it's interesting, too, that 
he actually is this higher version, this newer version of David. So he's supposed to put the crew members more at ease than David did, but he does that by being more human, right? He seems less synthetic. Walter does Yeah, Walter, you? actually, less robotic. Huh. I went back and watched Interesting. today. I found some clip on YouTube that was like a promotional video yeah. for Prometheus. Oh, they had, and it's, yeah. it's all just David talking to the camera. David, what makes you sad? War. Poverty. Cruelty. Unnecessary violence. I understand human emotions. Although I do not feel them myself. This allows me to be more efficient and capable and makes it easier for my human counterparts to interact with He is so mannered and stilted and obviously a robot, whereas Walter, I think in many ways, you... If you didn't know otherwise, you could come into certain scenes and think he is human. I think about a great exchange that happens very early in Covenant where they've just had a big accident. They're trying to assess the situation. I don't remember exactly what was said, but now the acting captain, Orem, played by Billy Crudup, sort of accuses well, not sort of. He basically accuses Walter of potentially making a mistake that caused this whole thing. And he says something rhetorically. And I don't remember the line, but Walter's response to it is something like, is that a question? And it's so perfect. It got a laugh out of the audience. Yeah, yeah. But if you really think about it, there's nothing about the way he says, is that a question, that's overly snarky or sarcastic. He's not really capable of that. No, he's, he's just computing. a robot. And yet there's something about the performance. There's something about Walter seeming in that moment so human. That's the way one of us would say that back to someone who we felt like was taking a shot at us. Okay, maybe Fassbender's performance is even better than we're giving it credit for because my response was that Walter is more robotic. Mm-hmm. And, and they talk about it at they, one point. They do talk about mm-hmm. it because David says when they made your generation, they made you more yeah. robotic because – I made humans yes. uncomfortable. I know it's because the I was of the too experience human. I have well, with them. But here's what I'm wondering: if the David in Prometheus was that more comfortable human, but he's different in Covenant because he's let's he just say different. evolved. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's fair and, too. And now, and now Walter is kind of that in between. Mm-hmm. He's that little bit of the uncanny valley. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and and so Fassbender is really giving. He's not playing. So this is what he's doing. He's not playing <laughs> David in Prometheus. Right. He's playing David in Covenant. In Covenant, which he should he's be. Playing, man, this guy's good. <laughs> he is good. Isn't <laughs> he's he? pretty good. Uh, so this is just, yeah. And he's, very, yeah, that's an uh, indication of how funny he is in this role, too. And we should just say, again, without giving too much away, that there are scenes of them facing off against each other. And that's where, like, the tennis analogy came to my mind. Right. And he's bouncing back and forth. It is such a blast. And this picks up the movie right when I can see what you mean by when they get on the planet, it starts to get a little routine. Yes. And, you know, the attacks are coming. <laughs> right. Your your phrasing of to quarantine or not to quarantine is perfect because they don't even like it's like we have to have that scene in here. I know. And we're not really going to even invest it in suspense. No. Nope. We're just dropping it in here because that's what alien fans expect. Right. Yes. And and there's nothing affecting about it yet. By the time Fassbender gets to really dig into this dual role, I think there's something interesting here that strikes a nice balance between the mythology of Prometheus, mm-hmm. 
which was all about where do these aliens come from, who, you know, maybe didn't, I don't remember either, not who created them, but who found them, whatever, blah, blah, blah. This is kind of just using a little portion of that with a character we already know and bringing them together in a way that allows it to be a smaller story. Does that make sense? Like, There's no doubt it's Prometheus a smaller story. story was like right. gargantuan, universe-wide. Yeah. And this is within that universe, but it's a very small, how one person played a role in it. Yeah. How one figure played a role in it. And that, you know, that I did appreciate. Despite all of his ambition, and I certainly don't want to relitigate Prometheus because, as I said, I don't even remember what I liked about it. I haven't even gone back and looked at my notes, much less watched the movie again. But I feel like in general, and we'll get to why here in a second, that movie, despite some of its failings, despite its maybe too big ambition, I still feel like it's a better constructed movie than this one. And for me, I have to say, Fastbender's performance was not enough to redeem the experience I had with hmm. this film. And going back to the setup a little bit, look, I don't need each alien film to completely reinvent itself. It's not like I'm keeping score on all the things they tried different, and that makes a successful movie. But if you really think about it, other than doing something radically different visually, and I don't feel like that's the case here. Yes, it's different in some ways. It's certainly much more confined than Prometheus was. And there is a sense, I think the right word for it, Ignati Vizhnevetsky in the AV Club made a really strong case for it being almost a gothic film. And that's there. But otherwise, again, I don't think it's a huge departure. How do you make a new alien movie? unless you're trying something that is a huge departure. There has to be something significantly different about either the setup, the circumstances, or I'll call them the consequences. One of those, two of those, or all three of them. Otherwise, it's going to feel just like an alien movie. And there's some promise here, I think, with the setup. If you think about Aliens 2, even Aliens 3, and Prometheus, they all certainly succeeded on this front in just giving us the basic scenario, a new take on what's ultimately going to lead us to very familiar territory. Everybody on the ship here is married mm -hmm. and they are all going off to create life together, presumably, and to foster as well the creation of new life in the form of all these embryos that are on board their ship. So they are gods in their own way, which is very fitting for this new version of the franchise, this new set of movies. Anyway, certainly going back to Prometheus, they are going to create a whole new world. But that couple's angle here isn't really explored at all. No. I now remember that I saw the trailer for this movie where there's a moment that isn't in the film that has them having kind of a last supper where they're just talking as couples before they go into the cryo sleep that more or less opens huh. the movie. And if you YouTube it, I did not watch it. I didn't really want to see it, but I know that it's out there because I've seen some people tweet it. There's basically that scene that's not in the film. You can watch that scene, but it's not here. And so you really don't get a sense, except for in two cases when the husband and wife are directly talking to each other. You don't really get a sense of who those couples are at all. And I think the good indicator of that is it's not that big of a crew. And yet, even as the plot demanded us to be invested in the relationships, I had no idea who was connected to each other. So, for example, Danny McBride, who plays a character named Tennessee here, and I think he's overall very good in the movie. A whole part of this film revolves around him wondering what's happening to his wife down there. I didn't know which character was his wife, even yeah, when there's only they, two women in the married. scene. Yeah. Right. So that's completely lost and has no effect ultimately. 
Another part of the setup here, the concept of faith comes up with respect to the new acting captain, Billy Crudup. That's never explored. I think it's mentioned twice. At one point, he tells his wife, they don't trust me or they're not fully going to trust me because of my faith, as if that maybe makes him weak in some way. But other than him saying it, right, what would have been great is to see a scene actually play out with his crew where it became clear that they didn't completely trust him and that that was something they held against him. Instead, we have to hear him talk about it, and then it's just gone from the story. Man, that's fascinating. I didn't know there was a scene out there like that because that's exactly the scene this movie needs. Right. And you think about the original Alien and how it starts with the crew around a table. Yes. Right? Sharing that you get... We talked about well, in our review how yeah. you get the relationships, the dynamics at play, and how crucial that is for everything that goes down afterwards. Yes. I mean, it's it's really something that this is uh, – obviously other people are involved as well, but the same director who made a film that functioned so well in those ways and that these same elements are here and they're just ignored. Because you're right. I was confused too who mm-hmm. Danny McBride – was married to. I did pick up on early that they were couples, some of them. I just thought it was some of them. Right. And this is really, you're ta- you're asking how can an alien movie be different? This is a really compelling way, this idea of covenant and a colonization uh-huh. vehicle or ship, right? The, the fact that there's that one shot where they pull out of a drawer and there are human embryos, I mean, that, that alone is yes. like, sort of makes your mind start reverberating, like what does this possibly mean but it's all pretty much dropped and they tie it in i do like how this movie i ends. do too we're gonna get to that i do too they tie it in at are the we end. gonna get to it but, i like it yeah. but in between those two things i think it is mostly dropped and you almost want to say is it dropped just in favor of straight action but i don't know if that's necessarily the case i don't know why it's dropped no i you don't can say the same thing for this the faith slash religion angle mm-hmm. and this is something that scott is clearly interested in lately i mean not only did he make prometheus which was very heavy in that the main character was also someone who had this faith aspect that was never really explained it was just referenced again uh, and he made Exodus gods and kings so obviously this is something that he's interested in exploring these last few years but none of those movies for me has done that in a way that produced any fruitful mm-hmm. observations or commentary or anything they're just character traits dropped in and the, what about that bizarre line about Billy Crudup out of nowhere tells someone he saw the devil when he was a child right and <laughs> And it's like, well, that's a that requires a yeah. follow up. Yeah, you know, you're right. That makes him seem like this crazy fundamentalist. I would, I would like to hear about yeah, that. As opposed to someone who just has faith. Do we hear about that? No, no of course we don't. we don't. So the setup here, we agree, could have been really compelling, mostly wasted. The circumstances, once the plot gets going from the point of the signal to the exploration of the planet, the discovery of the eggs, the chest bursting. We've talked about it. There's nothing much new there. And then the consequences, that final act, what happens to the crew and why? Who's the real antagonist here? What are their motivations? What are the implications of their motivations? That is all rooted in the mythology of this whole franchise. And yet there is a fresh element to it here that we're not going to get into. But the problem is, Josh, for me, by the time it got there, despite how much of a factor Fassbender's characters are in this and how good he is, I had given up caring about where any of this went. And the reason why lies in some of the things we've already touched on and we'll touch on again, but also 
I've seen some chatter online really praising this movie for effectively becoming a true horror movie. And I'm not the expert on the genre at all, but I certainly feel like a good chunk of this movie, and I don't know this is what they mean, but a good chunk of this movie turns into a pretty uninventive slasher movie where the bulk of the final act is just the screenwriters coming up with really bad excuses to get the crew members separated from each other so the monster can attack and kill them in really gruesome ways. There's no real logic to anything that goes on down on that planet once they meet David. There's really no logic to any of what happens between the characters in those scenes, where they end up, what happens to them. It's all just a setup to get to the payoffs of those deaths, I think, ultimately. And that's not interesting for me. You could say the same of the payoffs that happen in the denouement or when they return back to the ship. Yeah, it feels like required. Like we talked about the quarantine thing. It feels like an alien movie has to have this. I mean, how long has it taken us in this review to even get to the mentioning of xenomorphs, which, are, you know, that that is the beating mm-hmm. heart of this franchise. For me, if you ask me, what it, what is an alien movie about? It's about those creatures, which were such a point of fascination in the first film and what they're capable of, the fear they instill, how you can possibly survive against them. We don't really get to that until well into this movie. And I would agree with you when that happens. It's very rote. The horror beats are very familiar. I would also argue that you know, the there are some practical effects here which look good, mm-hmm. but there is also a lot of CGI that does not, I think, and that doesn't help either. So as a horror movie, I wouldn't describe this as a horror movie first, and even those elements, for me, weren't very effective. Yeah, and what we were saying about the characters here during this whole roundabout of all these characters going to their deaths, there's at least one crew member who gets his turn that I'm positive We hadn't seen do anything in this film except be in the background of a group shot early in the movie. Like, literally, I felt like I was seeing some faces for the first time, Mm. which you're talking about things that shouldn't happen in an alien movie. You see Alien once. You remember Ripley, Dallas, Ash, Kane, Parker. I could just give you those names. You could tell me the actors who played them. You remember what they did in the film. Here, you'd probably recognize by name. Obviously, you'd recognize Walter. You'd recognize Daniels, Catherine Waterston. Maybe Orem, I think they say his name a few times, the acting captain. Tennessee obviously stands out because Danny McBride gets a fairly big role here. And he's got such a unique name. He's He's, a cowboy. He's wearing a hat. He's he's from the South, and he can recognize John Denver tunes. But, Josh, who is Kareen, Ricks, Ferris, Upworth, Hallett? And Jor, Ledward. Apparently, they're all married. They're all married. I've, I've I don't come know to learn that to who I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's you have no sense of who they are in this film. It's definitely a fault. Okay, you you asked about you know generally the stakes and where this is going. What's interesting about it, and you mentioned the antagonist, mm-hmm. and I will just say that is where the hook was for me. That became interesting not only for the performance but also for what this meant within the larger universe, and it tied into the xenomorph mythology in a direct but simple way that I did find interesting. Now, I have a question for you that we'll have to dance around a little bit. Okay. Is, were you satisfied with the reveal of the antagonist at the end, or do you wish that had been left a little more vague? I will say that I was disappointed, actually. That it wasn't left ambiguous. Yeah. I really wanted to leave the theater 
thinking about it. Yeah. And they chose not to. I mean, you would have known, right? I think you would have really known. I certainly had a hunch, and I think I would have enjoyed it a little more had the movie left it that way. That said, here's where I will completely contradict myself as I'm tearing down this film and further add, Josh, as I tear it down, that when those attacks that I'm talking about that I think are so boring aren't happening, we get lots of conversations, the same types of conversations that you didn't like in Prometheus, these philosophical meanderings. It doesn't matter how good Fastbender may be in those scenes. It's a lot of exposition at some points, a lot it's of true. explaining of motivations that lay out everything that's going to happen. That can only be so compelling when you're not buying anything else the movie is trying to sell you. The contradiction is, though, Despite my disappointment with all of that, and despite my disappointment with the ending not being a little bit more ambiguous, because they closed that loop, if you will, there's a part of me that's actually maybe more excited than I thought I'd be to see where the next one goes. Oh, I'm absolutely. ready now to see the next film yeah. because of the way this movie ends. I, so I they would did agree, I, though I, I would be more so if it had been left ambiguous, and it just has that feel of a lack of faith in the audience which is is always dispiriting to me. I, you hate it. I, I know this is a huge blockbuster to be aimed for the summer. And so they feel they have to sell this thing to the lowest common denominator and make everything clear and obvious. And I just wish they had been a little riskier in saying, let's let's leave them guessing. Well, let's and actually, leave them wondering. If you think about it, Josh, wouldn't we, as I say it out loud and as I think about it, it occurs to me that I'd be even more excited to start the next movie Absolutely. Because I didn't know exactly how the last one And I think general audiences would as well. So I think this is a lack of faith in the audience on the studios, the producers, whoever's part, not feeling like it has to be spoon fed to them. And I just don't think that's the case, Mm -hmm. even with mainstream audiences. Okay, so here's my question for you, because as I was watching it, I felt like, oh, this is the Prometheus stuff Josh probably hates. (laughs) But my favorite scene in this movie is the opening scene of the film. So between Guy Pearce and Fassbender. As David. It's an interesting conversation. I did think, I, I thought, oh man, here we go again. But I think because it was, despite those later conversations you were referring mm-hmm. with David, I think they do pop up here and there. But for the most part, this was the only one that really went full bore Prometheus. So for me, it worked as a setup, okay? Yeah. To say, here are some interesting ideas. And it also played out in terms of character motivation. I will say, it's the most gorgeous looking element oh, yeah. of this movie. Prometheus is a more beautiful film. I'll give you that. Sure, by this, design. This yeah. looks, well, I mean, and there are some, you know, this planet has some, you know, amazing landscapes and they take advantage of that. But otherwise, again, there's a lot of CGI. It's not that distinctive. Whereas Prometheus was really beautiful. The kind of stuff you expect from Scott. This beginning, this prologue mm-hmm. really gets that. The use of this wide room that David and his creator, mm-hmm. Guy Pierce, who returns here, they're in and they're sharing. There's a piano and a chair. That's about it. And it's, it's otherwise all it's a white space, Very like sterile. a 2001 type environment. And then a window looking out at a planetscape. It's beautiful. It is. And the way they way Scott uses that space where they walk back and forth and when they are in the same area, how long it takes David to walk from one says so much about his character motivation. I really thought it was pretty great, too. Good. Yeah, I did, too. I think it obviously functions, besides just being beautiful, it obviously offers the concept of creation that is such a huge part of this set of alien movies, and to a lesser extent, all alien movies. But even more than that, it does set up something that the movie kind of follows through on, which is this idea of servitude. And Mm -hmm. I don't completely want to ruin it for people who haven't seen the movie yet, but this is the opening scene, and there's a moment where David 
I think it's fair to say, gets the better of his superior, of his creator intellectually, but he still has to be the one to serve him as tea. Right. right. So oh, yeah. there's all sorts of power struggles on display here in this opening scene even. And then throughout the whole course of the film, which we see in the form of the acting captain and the fact that he's the acting captain is important and some of the decisions he makes and being questioned by one other officer, in this case, Catherine Waterston. So that is an element that does seep into the whole fabric of the film from that opening scene. You know, as you're talking and thinking about the Fassbender performance, it strikes me that here's another Fassbender connection. Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina, right? Right. Playing a somewhat similar character. Uh, This is almost as if she, that character, Mm -hmm. had had another character in the film that was more servile, that was more complacent Mm -hmm. and following the path and that she had a chance to play off herself. It's kind of like... That's what Fassbender's getting to do here. Sure. And Fassbender, of course, Mr. Alicia Vikander. Right, exactly. In real life. If there is even real life. I'm not sure they're real people. They're both too perfect, and they might in fact be androids. Alien Covenant is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Poll time next when we'll reveal which would-be blockbuster of summer 2017 Adam and I are likely underestimating and a film-spotting madness-worthy deathmatch, store in Chinatown. Can I pick him up, Dad? Sure, go ahead. Just be careful. You gotta be gentle. I will. I hope he's housebroken. And that is what I believe is called in the business, Josh, dramatic irony. From 1984, Joe Dante's Gremlins, and we are teasing that because next week on the show, we are planning to share our top five films of 1984, part of our year-by-year countdowns. Gremlins was one of the titles we were kind of considering for a potential Sacred Cow review. Someone scoffed at that suggestion. I did. I did. Damn. Though I love... I When's love, the last time you saw Gremlins? In 1984. Oh. 84. I love that you can look back on these 80s movies like Back to the Future and apply... Prometheus-like philosophizing (laughs) to them. Isn't that what we do here? It is what we do here, but you're not going to get a chance to do it, at least during the Sacred Cow portion of the show, as we are going a different direction. Instead, we are going to review James Cameron's The Terminator. And this was hard because I think you're like me, Josh. We would always prefer to have an excuse to force ourselves to watch something we haven't already seen, Mm -hmm. as opposed to revisiting something, even though That can obviously be very fun and rewarding as well. And The Terminator is a movie I haven't seen in its entirety since probably around 1984. So I'm sure it will be good. But 
when we looked through the list of 84 films, I just couldn't find one that was a blind spot for me and was a blind spot for you that seemed like it was really worthy of discussion. And Gremlins, as fun as it is, might even make a top five. I don't know. On next week's show, I felt like maybe Terminator was one our audience would have a little bit more of a hook to hear discussed, especially with Terminator 2 getting re-released in theaters this summer. Yeah, I think so. And I didn't realize, I was just looking back on this in my archives, that I was lukewarm on Terminator. I liked it, but wasn't wild about it. And I bet I revisited it in time for, it wouldn't have been for T2. I'm sure I did before T2, but I think I've seen it more recently, probably for the last couple of films at some point I revisited it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'd be interested to see if I was maybe underrating it a little bit by not, at this point, I wouldn't name it as one of the top five films of 84, but maybe a revisit will change that. Of course, now I do have to make Gremlins number one to show you how wrong you are. So that will will happen. Well, you can go for it. I'm not going to be wrong in my appreciation for Gremlins, even though I'm trapped in my nine-year-old recollection of that film. But I loved Gremlins when I was a kid. At least you're in favor. No, we're not going to fight about that. Other movies we might fight about next week... You don't properly appreciate Ghostbusters or Footloose. Ghostbusters, or... overrated. No. Footloose, nope. terrible. Nope. Nope, you're wrong. And even Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock's pretty good. Also overrated. I don't know. Is it? Yes. Do people love that movie? It's not oh, The yeah. Wrath of Khan. Isn't, isn't it usually referred to as the second best? I don't After know. Wrath it? of Khan? I, I think know. it is. is. Both of them aren't that great, so I don't know what everybody's talking about. Well, I'm kind of a fan of The Search for Spock, so we'll see what else we can do as far as getting into trouble with each other. Some other catching up you might have to do, Josh. Bachelor Party. Mm. Seen it? No. I don't. Oh, well, Tom Hanks. I've walked through Bachelor Party. <laughs> You've walked through it. Yeah. I see, a lot of these 80s movies I remember playing on neighbors' TV screens as I was going to do something more interesting. Uh-huh. Bachelor Party, I think, is one. You were one. so enlightened, even, <laughs> yes. even back uh-huh. in 1984. I, I took a glance was like, nah, better things to do. Red Dawn, you now, performed it in Massacre Theater. I've seen Red Dawn. I mean, that was, that was up my alley. Yeah. Okay. Revenge of the Nerds, Purple Rain, Revenge other of the Nerds contenders. Seen, not seen Purple Rain. See, mm. I do, and I. There are a couple other titles I need to see before forming this top five list. Well, this is right in my wheelhouse. I mean, this was about the age for me when I was not only watching a ton of stuff on HBO as a kid. I think around this time is when we got HBO in our house, but also going to my local one-screen movie theater and watching all of these films on the screen. This is. Right that time period, Josh. So I've seen all these movies. There's very little in the way of blind spots. No research needs to be done for Adam (laughs) Kepinar. And I don't want to revisit them either for the most part. I just want to remember them as I enjoyed them as a young boy. If you have a favorite 84 film or an 84 film you're afraid that we're going to overlook, send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. And if you ever lose that number, just go to filmspotting.net, scroll down, or click on About Us. You will see that voicemail number right there. We have some notes to get to, Josh, and via social media and also email. We heard from a few people who were responding to our discussion last week of Jonathan Demi, Something Wild, a blind spot for us, part of our tribute to Demi, who unfortunately did pass just a few weeks ago. And they all said, what are you guys talking about? You made it sound like nobody can see Something Wild, and it's available on Criterion Collection. You're right, and we probably should have been clearer when we were saying it's not widely available. We were really thinking if, like, you were looking to get a hold of it right now, mm-hmm. not having somewhere. to actually buy it for yeah. 30 bucks or whatever, whether streaming or on Netflix DVD, some way to see it that didn't involve actually purchasing it. It's not widely available that way, but if you were encouraged 
to see it by our discussion or you do just want to revisit it, absolutely, the Criterion Collection is probably a pretty good way to go. Criterion worthy, would you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think so too. For sure. We did also last week wrap up our Agnes Varda Marathon. Six movies. The final one was her 2008 memoir, The Beaches of Agnes. And we also awarded the Cleos our Best of the Marathon honors. Beaches was the 89-year-old Varda's final film until... Sam caught this, Josh. It was just announced that her new film premieres later this month at Cannes. It's called Visages, Villages. And the setup is that Varda and photographer muralist J.R. journey through rural France and form an unlikely friendship. Unreal. Which sounds... Exactly like what we would expect from Agnes Varda, does, having yeah. seen the beaches of Agnes and the Gleaners and I and some of the other films that were part of our marathon. So you can now add this to the list of recent marathon coincidence spotting, as we like to call it. You'll recall we did our Elaine May marathon, and then she comes out of retirement after 30 years and directs the American Masters documentary about her former partner, Mike Nichols. Then we did our Sachajit Ray marathon. Criterion announces that they've completed this ambitious restoration of the Apu trilogy that happened right as we were actually getting underway with the marathon. Seemed perfect. Can we continue to claim credit for these? That I mean, that's what we're doing have, right now. Yeah, people have heard these marathons <laughs> and they it. say we've got to get these folks more yeah. attention. Okay, so let's see if we can make it four for four as we are going to get to our Next marathon, it's not coming until the fall of 2017. We may begin it actually in August, but we are going to focus on new Argentine cinema. So cinema from Argentina. The farthest we'll probably go back is 2000. We're really going to focus on contemporary Argentine cinema. If you are an expert in that field, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any great ideas about the marathon, directors we should focus on, or films we should definitely make time for, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And maybe it's time, Josh, I got this email and I want to share this real quick because I love hearing from listeners who enjoy these marathons. And, you know, we have decided recently to make them a separate download because we recognize that not everybody who listens to film spotting for the new reviews or the top fives is necessarily into the marathons. Maybe they just don't have time for these films. I think some people probably listen anyway, just because they hopefully enjoy the conversation, whether they are following along with each and every film. The sense we get is that there are some listeners who are very hardcore about these marathons and mm -hmm. who have told us over the years that it's their favorite part of the show. For so sure. It gets in our heads that, oh, everybody loves the marathons. I don't know that everybody does love the marathons, but the people who do really love it. And we got this great email from a listener who identifies himself as Zoe. Hey, two best friends in film spotting nation, loyal listener and constant tweeter here. I've been with the show since end of 2008 and have mostly loved every minute of it, mostly being in reference to some of the lowlights, i.e. Mr. Phillips, who I adore, being the most wrong about Raiders of the Lost Ark and your enjoyment of the Fast and Furious films. As a diehard action fan, no pun intended, I refuse to get on board with the steaming slop pile that is F and F and can't understand the weird amount of appreciation for it. Do I really have to keep reading this? Yes. Anyway, I've been re-listening to old episodes and this series of questions hit me. What has been the film spotting marathon that has meant the most to you, most surprised you, the one you will no doubt revisit, and the marathon that had the most important films? I would really love to hear a marathon retrospective. Get Sam involved in the advisory board. Maybe I've been stuck with a twinge of nostalgia in my old age, but the marathons have meant so much to me in my own film education. Here is my list. Meant the most to me. Kislowski. Most surprising. Brisson. Revisit Wilder. Most important. The Marx Brothers. 
Last thing that I have for you, Adam, you and Sam were so wrong about bringing up baby. I was listening to your reviews with my mouth agape. It is my favorite Catherine Hepburn role. Her over-the-top acting style actually works for this character. Thank you, guys. And in the words of Braveheart, I love you. Oh, I got to do this. It says Josh should read in Scottish accent. Yeah. I love you. Always of. <laughs> Not bad. Not no, bad. I'm not glad bad. I'm glad you had the opportunity to read that there. Thank you so much. So so not gonna put you on the spot here, Josh, but I think it's something we could do as a fun little exercise on an upcoming show. Or maybe when we get into our next marathon, just take a little trip back through memory lane. It will be much easier for you because it will be a shorter journey. This is my thirtieth or thirty first marathon, something like that, going back to two thousand five. I think this last marathon with Varda was what, maybe your eighth? Or so sounds about right. Okay, so you've had fewer. Will be a little bit easier, maybe, for you to answer those questions. But I think it'd be fun, and I'm kind of just throwing it out there, and I'm throwing it out there to our audience as well. If you have followed along with these marathons, if you do see them as an integral part of the show, please let us know which marathons mean the most to you. What was the most surprising? The one you're definitely going to revisit, and the most important. Or I could just offer one answer for all of his categories. You're going to say Satchi Ray, aren't Ray, and we're done. Well, I mean, that's fair. You can't really argue no, with that. No, I can't really argue with it. And I can't really argue with bringing up Baby either because I certainly know that movie's reputation. I certainly love Howard Hawks as a filmmaker, but that is one that Sam and I both were not fans of at all during our Screwball Comedy Marathon. And... Over the years, I have considered that it was probably one. I think, in fact, on one of our anniversary shows, maybe Film Spotting 300, the top five movies I probably got wrong, Bringing Up Baby was definitely in that top five. It's one I should revisit. So speaking of segments of the show that are hopefully integral to what we do here on Film Spotting, we want to talk about the Golden Bricks for a second because we got some great feedback, Josh, in response to the query we put out a few weeks ago where we said, hey, we feel like we don't have a ton in the way of great Golden Brick contenders. There aren't a bunch of obvious ones on our radar. And if you've seen some movies that seem to fit our criteria as far as being movies that reflect a clear artistic vision, they're from new or emerging filmmakers, and they certainly aren't mainstream, they're a little bit off the beaten path, send them our way. We'll consider them and, of course, try to hunt them down. And we got some great responses, including this one from an old pal of mine, Jim Bernstein in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I have a film that fits all the criteria for a brick. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. It certainly is not mainstream and that I don't believe it has been in theaters. I watched it on Netflix. It has a first-time director, Macon Blair, who was the lead in 2014 Golden Brick winner, Blue Ruin. All true. Really want to see this film. Me too. If there's... A reason I haven't prioritized it, it might be because there's a lot of familiarity going on here. There's Macon Blair. There's the Blue Ruin connection. There's the fact that there have been a lot of Coen Brother references in the reviews to okay. this film. So for me, I, I'm, ju I'm just wondering what's the unique, the vision behind this. And maybe I'm completely wrong in my perception. I hope to find out. I do want to watch this before the end of the year. But that would catapult it to Golden Brick category. See, but a I lot thought, of people have have suggested yeah, it. So. Exactly. A lot of people have. Who have and, seen it. Right. And who have said that there is that sort of fresh take yeah. on this material. I thought you might say that the reason you haven't prioritized it is the same reason I haven't, which is those nights where the kids are finally in bed and I'm still barely awake, but I'm going to fit a movie in. And it's right there. It's on Netflix. Yeah. And it's not a long movie either. I think it's probably right in my 90-minute, 95 to 100-minute wheelhouse. I just read the description again of the movie. And don't get me wrong. If it was playing in theaters and if we were reviewing it on the show, I'd be so excited mm -hmm. about it. 
But that movie, again, where you're just kind of looking to unwind at the end of the night and you don't necessarily want something that is going to be intense and disturb you Mm -hmm. in any way where you're really going to be kind of on the edge of your seat in terms of feeling for the characters and the situations they end up in or put themselves in. That's how I am with those types of movies. And this movie looks like one of those films. So I have to psych myself up to watch I don't feel at home in this world anymore. And maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong about that, and I should just settle down and take it all in, you can email and tell us that as well. We also got this recommendation. And this movie, Josh, has been the single most recommended movie in response to our call for Brick nominees. It comes from Tim in London. Just heard your call out for Golden Brick nominees and had to share this film that I saw this week, which even before I heard the call, I tagged as a surefire brick contender. The film is William Oldroyd's debut, Lady Macbeth, based on the Nikolai Leskov novel, but transposed to rural Yorkshire, I think, in 1865. It has an absolutely astonishing central turn from Florence Pugh as a powerless woman in a loveless marriage who gradually comes to dominate her household by nefarious means after she falls into an intense relationship with a mixed-race servant. It presents kind of like a Downton Abbey-style period drama, but it's incredibly atmospheric, sinister, and powerful. I think it comes out in America in July, and I highly, highly recommend you check it out. So... Yes, this has been the single most recommended film coming from people across the pond, as it were, because it is true. I think July may be the release date. It is not out here. There is no way to see this movie yet. We haven't gotten any emails about any screenings or screener links available, but I can't wait to see it. It is obviously not an adaptation of Macbeth, but it sounds like it may have some references or may be tied in some way a little bit there with that main character. I can't wait to see this film based on everything we've heard about it. So we're going to keep our eyes peeled yeah, for Lady Macbeth. That sounds great. Okay. Speaking of Across the Pond, I'm heading that way. I'm so jealous. I'll be in London in June and we're going to do a meetup. Is this the first international meetup or have you done one before? It is not. Believe it or not, I did a film spotting meetup. in Scandinavia? Yeah. Four or five film spotting listeners came out to a Helsinki, Finland <laughs> That's great. How great is that? Yes, I love it. Yes, they did give me a bottle of vodka to take home. (laughs) Well, hopefully the London meetup will be as exciting. I am going to be there mid-June. Nigel Smith, we know, of the Tufnell Park Film Club. He's going to help organize this. We're looking for a spot. We need to settle a date. I've heard from a couple listeners who are already looking to meet up. I've heard from Chris, Simon, and Paul. So look to the Film Spotting Forum on the website where you'll find that. And when we get details, we'll put them there. I'll also tweet about it and put something on Facebook. Larson on Film is where you can find me. Yeah, so jealous. I have not been back to London since I was a student in 1995. Spent four months there. Best four months of my life. I hope you don't have to pay for a pint the whole time you're there. Actually, I take that back. You better buy them pints. That's how we do it here at these film spotting meetups. But that should be fun. And as you've been appearing on so many podcasts and you've been doing so much promotion for your upcoming book, Movies or Prayers, June 13th. Thank you. Wow, look at you got that down. I know. I know the full title (laughs) at this point. I'm assuming you're going to make an appearance at the Tufnell Park Film Club. You're going to have to do some kind of speaking. Nigel did suggest that, so I don't know what their schedule is or how that will work out. Keep in mind, this is a family vacation as well. So, you know, getting one night out at the pub, I feel like I'm doing pretty well at this point. We'll see if I can push for a Tufnell Park Film Club appearance as well. I'm going to email Nigel and recommend Bachelor Party. (laughs) That would be great. Plenty to talk about. Oh, the philosophy we could get into. (laughs) I agree. I think that you do tend to 
find a way, as we said, to add grandiose themes to these 80s comedies. I don't see why Bachelor Party would be any different. Gremlins so, is such a great consumerist satire. Uh huh. I, I can't wait for you to illuminate us all. You just said it, though, so now your whole take on it's done. Oh, I have more. Oh, you have more? I have more. <laughs> okay. So, final bit of housekeeping here or little promotional notes we want to share. Last week, we touched on it. We teased it. I didn't want to fully announce what I had the opportunity to do a couple Saturdays ago because the show wasn't out yet. And until the show actually got posted, I wasn't going to believe that it really happened. But we got this email from Brett Matsky, who says, congrats to Adam on his Doug Loves Movies appearance. I've listened to both podcasts for about 10 years, so I got a kick out of hearing it. If only Jeff Tate wasn't on, you might have stood a chance. Ooh, that, that was a tornado you ran into. A buzzsaw, man. Not that, not that I could have done any better at all. Though really, Kurt Russell? I know. Come on. I know. I'm, I mean, that, that was like a layup. I'm really disappointed in myself. And what Josh is referring to, we don't want to spoil the episode if you haven't heard Doug Loves Movies. And if you aren't a regular listener of that show and you are a film spotting and maybe you're going to sample it, I will at least mention to you that it's a very different show than film spotting. It's definitely not a film criticism show. It's a movie trivia show, but it's also... But Doug knows his stuff. He does know I his mean, stuff, comes and Jeff Tate does too. clearly. Right, but it's not about certainly reviewing movies. Right, it's about right, right. trivia and having fun, and it's mostly comedians on the stage, yes. sometimes actors or critics or people associated with film. So it's mostly about having a good time. It's mostly about laughing, which is what I do every week when I listen to the show, and what I certainly did a ton on stage. So getting asked to be on Doug Loves Movies was about the pinnacle for me of highlights I can point to over the past 12 years plus of doing this show. I really still am a little bit in shock that it happened. And yeah, Jeff Tate, who I know because he's kind of a regular on Doug Loves Movies, and I knew he was always hilarious and he was especially hilarious on this show. I also knew that he knew his stuff when it came to movies, but he hadn't been on in a while. I had forgotten just how sharp he was. And the funny part is, the game's open with the IMDb game, where every actor has the known for the four movies. And I mm-hmm. told you this. I lamented that I couldn't believe Doug made it so hard because I listen to the show every week. They frequently do this game. I have a much easier that was time with it. Incredibly hard one. He starts with he gives you titles, and whoever correctly identifies the actor first, then you get a point. And he keeps going through four or five rounds. And the first one was Anne Margaret, who of course I know, but can think of maybe three movies mm-hmm. that she's in. And then it's Alan Arkin. And I know the show, and I know that Doug usually has a theme right. for these, and I'm trying to think of the theme, and I'm going, and Margaret Allen Ark, and I'm trying to come up with some movie from the 60s they were in together, totally drawing a blank. I bomb hard on that segment. And then he says what the connection is at the end of it, and he says it's the movie Going in Style. And I'm like, Going in Style? Is this some movie from the 60s I've never heard of? Like, Doug, why did you do this to us? So then last Friday, this is about a week after being on the show, I decided to bring up the movie times just to see what's playing at the theater kind of near where we live, Josh. And I'm going through the list of titles (laughs) and what do I see going in style? What? It's not a movie from the sixties. I've even seen the trailer for this movie. It's that movie about the old people who rob a bank, Alan Arkin, Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, and Margaret's in it. Yes. All I know is it's the old people like set out to rob a bank movie. No, I've seen that trailer too. I have too. Had no idea. Completely forgotten until this moment. Had no idea it was called Going in Style or that it opened this Friday. That's what you get for a generic title. I had no clue what was going on and you can tell. You held your own though. I did hold my own. Overall, you held your own. But it's funny because Sarah was out in the audience and 
when they said Kurt Russell for Last Man Stand, where it's just a game where you yeah. go around and you have to name a movie that Kurt Russell appeared in until you can't anymore. The last person standing wins. And when they said Kurt Russell, I did breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. I knew that I could come up with at least seven or eight. And so I wouldn't embarrass myself. And Sarah turns to our friends who are there and says, Adam was just telling me the other day that if there was any person, <laughs> any person, he could just snap his fingers and they'd be on the podcast. It's Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. He's got this. Yeah. And then I got up there and I came up with my seven or eight and I was done. I couldn't even remember. This is how hard it is when you get on stage. When you get on stage and you're actually being peppered with those questions under the lights, I couldn't remember the name of Death Proof. Yeah. I it kept all, it all disappears. I kept just saying to myself, Death, Death. <laughs> That Tarantino. That didn't death. even help you. No, I couldn't come up with death proof, but I could somehow come up with planet terror, even though I hated that. So, yeah, you Doug loves movies was a trip. Kurt Russell's never coming on the show now. I don't blame him. If you had, if you had won, yeah, that would have. Then he would have come on right away. But oh well, it was a ton of fun though, and I think. I think I just didn't embarrass myself, which was my only goal. And I certainly was not going to compete with the comedians to try to be funny. So I just tried to pick my spots and it was a good time. And hopefully you'll check it out. I do highly recommend Doug Loves Movies. Welcome to Alpha. The city of a thousand planets. Where for hundreds of years, every species has shared their knowledge and their intelligence with each other. It's paradise. Amazing. Amazing indeed. I'm a little bit surprised, Josh, at how our poll results came out. We are maybe going to have a movie we didn't plan on seeing to see and talk about here as the summer progresses valerian and the city of a thousand planets you heard dane dahan there a couple weeks back we shared our top five questions about the summer movie season our version of the summer movie preview valerian did not make either of our most anticipated movies of the summer but maybe it should have we did include it in our poll question which was these summer 2017 movies don't look good which one are we probably underestimating the options were baywatch Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, The Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Luke Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, or no, it's fine. You can skip these. How did it come out, Josh? Well, in last place, by virtue of not being included in the poll for a good no, 24 that hours. that is not why. It was destined <laughs> it is, to fail, Josh. It is. Destined to fail. Was, was it not a poll option for at least 24 hours? Is yes. that true? Okay, just, that just wanted true. to put that out there. Sample the voucher me doesn't matter. The rest is speculation. <laughs> it is in last place. This is uh-huh. also true. Where it belongs. With 6%. We don't need to go on anymore about Ted Mandelman Tales. Following that was Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. 8% probably correct based on the recent box office. The Mummy came in next with 11% and then Baywatch with 17%. A little bit of a jump there, but at the top, it was close between, no, it's fine, you can skip these, received 28% of the vote. But yes, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets won the poll with 30%. And, you know, I'm okay with that because of all the options, even though I actually picked Baywatch, Dwayne, The Rock Johnson, and Zac Efron there, certainly way ahead over Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe in The Mummy. If you look at the cast... For that Basson film, you got not only Dane DeHaan, who's very talented, but Clive Owen, my guy Ethan Hawke, the Hawkesants, and Rutger Hauer 
Rihanna also in that film. So even though I've never actually seen The Fifth Element, and I do like The Professional, I'm a fan of Leon, so I suppose I'm a Basson fan, but I am not an expert on his work by any means, and maybe that's why I could go either way on this film, but it did win 30%, and that means we may just have to see it. Jen voted in that direction. She's from Chicago and said, you got to give Valerian a chance. I mean, it could be terrible, but it will be a glorious, messy, creative explosion kind of terrible. Luke Besson is unpredictable, but his passion for movies and his enthusiasm shines through in all his projects. Whatever that mad Frenchman cooks up, I'll give it a taste. In a sea of sequels and safe bets, don't you want to try something original? I do like that logic. Okay, Luke Gray, shorter, but maybe on the exact same point, you were thinking about not reviewing a film where Ethan Hawke plays a character called Jolly the Pimp. Is that true? I don't know, but I'm going to run with it. Adding here, Max O'Connell, guys, Valerian looks rad. Wow. Did, did Max know we're going to be revisiting the 80s in our next episode? <laughs> apparently, apparently he did. So Valerian beat the skip all these option. We may try and see it. It doesn't help, though, that it opens opposite Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which we will certainly review. No, I, I think the results of this poll mean that we do not see Dunkirk <laughs> You're right. and we go see Valerian. I wonder how that poll would come out Valerian versus Dunkirk in that death match. Lauren Bycroft says, I'm really looking forward to checking out The Mummy when it comes around. I was a big fan of the first Brendan Fraser Mummy film and its Indiana Jones-esque charm. This new film officially kicking off Universal's shared monsters universe. That's a thing. Is that going to be a thing, Josh? I think whether we have a choice or not, it's oh, going to be a thing. It seems to be going in a different direction, but I'm intrigued. While I don't think we need a shared universe for The Mummy, Frankenstein's Monster, and all the rest, I almost always find myself entertained by Tom Cruise in full action mode. Add in a fearsome-looking Sophia Butella as a badass female villain, and Russell Crowe as Dr. Henry Jekyll, and I'll gladly pay my $12 to see what they've cooked up. I was also a fan, Lauren, of those Brendan Fraser mummy films. Ben Howarth in North Hollywood, California, said, I can say, having read the script to Baywatch, that you and everyone else are massively underestimating the film. There you go. The script is a brilliant bit of cartoonish self-parody that I think in many ways could even top 21 Jump Street. Now, of course, it could very well be that the final product has smoothed out all the fun edges of the version I read. But if they stuck to what I read, then this will be the runaway comedy of the summer. And all you scoffers will look like fools when you see why The Rock will have the greatest character entrance in film history since John Wayne in Stagecoach. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. I'm they sold. watch in Stagecoach in the same sentence. Thank you, Ben Haworth. Ben Spanner in Chicago says, in the winter of 09, I love this story. I tried mayonnaise for the first time. I put it on a sandwich and I never looked back. Had I had sandwiches before? Yeah, man. But do I put mayo on sandwiches now? Of course, because sometimes it just makes a bad sandwich great. Not every sandwich, but most sandwiches. I never watch Baywatch in its prime, but they just put the rock on that sandwich. This story makes me ill, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm a big fan of mayo, so... I'm happy for I, you. I can smell what Ben is cooking. Please. And I'm on board. Sign me up. Thank you to the Bens and to everyone who commented on that poll and who voted in that poll. Of course, the question is, who is or what is Zac Efron in that metaphor? Is he another condiment? Adam, is he the please. meat? Is he a veggie Stop. topping? Stop. Okay. You are getting sick, aren't you? Yes. That brings us to this week's poll question. As we said, next week's show, the top five films of 1984, plus a sacred cow review of James Cameron's Terminator. A simple, but we hope inspired, 84 deathmatch for you. You can only pick one. 
only one of these films is going to continue to exist. This is film spotting madness rules applied to this poll question. That's the way it works with death matches. The loser goes into cinema's dustbin forever. Choose wisely, Josh. Here we go. The Terminator versus Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. So, okay, you'll love this because we're going to get to the minutia of possible rules here. Okay. If we got rid of the Terminator, does T2 Ooh. still exist? Ooh. We're going to have to discuss the okay, rules yes. committee. We, by, no, me. by no means could we give an instinctive just, answer no. and sit with that. We, you just gave me and Sam a week's yes. worth of conversation. Oh, my gosh. Do, do not CC me. Please just <laughs> let me know on the last email. <laughs> will do. Does this mean you're going Terminator? I will say if T2 still exists, then I'm going Spinal Tap. Okay. Follow me? So I if, do if follow we, you. If we get and, rid of Terminator, but we still have T2. And then... my instinctive answer is yes, T2 still exists. Okay. Spinal Tap then. But the Terminator will not. Right. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter for me because this is Spinal Tap is one of the five funniest movies ever made. So it's the winner here. It's my choice. We want to know what you think. Will it in fact be the winner? You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So I'm not sure if you saw that Time article asking real scientists how an alien encounter will go down at them. But Mm -mm. there seemed to be consensus that they likely wouldn't eat us. (laughs) Hopefully that will help us stay calm as we get into our top five alien attacks when we come back. Stay with us. Two little men in a flying saucer flew down to earth one day. Looked to left and right of it, couldn't stand the sight of it and said, let's fly away. They took a look at a western movie Somebody heard them say If a horse can be a star Think how dumb the people are We'd better fly away Then they shook their little green antennas Scratched their purple hair Said this planet is an awful menace Let's go back to where we came from. Two little men in a flying saucer just didn't care to stay. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Rowdy Roddy Piper and John Carpenter's They Live from 1988. The humanoid aliens in They Live were my number one thing from space that came to destroy us back in April 2014 when we did that top five. It was a tie-in with a 2014 film that just might come up on this week's top five, which is Alien Attacks, inspired by the Alien franchise and our review of Alien Covenant earlier in the show. So we did decide that we would have some exclusions here with this list. One is we would not include any alien movies. They're not eligible. Could probably come up with some great attacks from that series, but we ruled it out just to open it up a little bit. And we also ruled out any of these other titles that made that prior list of things from space that came to destroy us. Josh, did that make this more difficult for you or were you okay? Did you have enough good options? So I was okay, but I didn't remember we did that other list. Uh-huh. When, when we, you threw when out we, the topic. I threw out the topic. But I think there was enough of a distinction once I thought about it between, you know, the, the creatures themselves 
and the actual in the attack. Scenes. And mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah, it got me considering a little bit more the structure of a scene and the effects and all the, how those elements played in. So, yeah, I mean, it, it did change my list a little bit from what I instinctively thought of because what I had earlier was some of my favorite films in this genre, but I came up with a good handful anyway. Okay, well, just briefly... I'll throw out there that I excluded not only They Live, but another John Carpenter movie, The Thing, The Andromeda Strain, The Predator from Predator, and General Zod in Superman 2 because they made that prior list. And as I was starting to form this list and jotting down titles that initially came to mind and trying to kind of make those tiers, which ones were contending for a top five spot, I realized that they were all those movies. Of course, They Live was jumping up to the top, The Thing, Andromeda Strain. So I had to set them aside, force myself to look in maybe some different dark tunnels to try to see where these creatures were. And I'm pretty happy with where I came out. So which ones did you have to exclude? Okay, so I set aside Gorilla Wolves from Attack the Block. They were my number one previously. The Martians from Mars Attacks. Extraterrestrial Grave Robbers from Plan 9 from Outer Space. The Aliens from Signs, I included, and then The Martians in the 1953 version of The War of the Worlds. An important distinction there. Yes, exactly. Well, get us started. All right, this time, so number five, I went with the scene where Gort disarms the soldiers in The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951. I'm going to move us gently into this top five with a relatively nonviolent pick here, Adam. As a matter of fact, Jason Knight on Facebook, when he suggested this, he called it the gentleman's attack. And I like that. That, that fits <laughs> really well. So this is early on after the flying saucer first lands. The army surrounds the ship as this masked figure comes out. And when it reaches in its cloak, a soldier with an itchy trigger finger shoots and wounds him. Then out comes Gort. This is the hulking robot figure that is iconic from this film. And he uses his face laser, I guess you'd call it, to dematerialize the soldier's guns. He even takes care of a tank that way. There's really some magical 1950s special effects going on here, as well as great use of theremin in the music and Mm -hmm. the score and audio effects in this scene as well. I mean, this is like 1950s science fiction distilled in this scene. So at the end, Klaatu, who's the masked figure, he eventually tells Gort to stand down and he submits himself to the government authorities. It's a really great instance of getting this film off to a fascinating start and shows that you don't want to mess with Gort, the perpetrator of my number five alien (laughs) attack. Well, I can't mess with Gort because he's a blind spot for me. The Day the Earth Stood Still is a movie I haven't seen. And I think a lot of these early sci-fi films are blind spots because you're not going to hear anything from Plan 9 from Outer Space on my list or that 50s version of War of the Worlds that previously made your list. Those are films that I still need to catch up with. So maybe not surprising why most of my picks are more recent. My number five is a 2010 film written and directed by Gareth Edwards, who everyone knows, of course, from Rogue One. This was his directorial debut, Monsters. And it's a film that takes place a few years after a NASA probe crashes in Mexico, and it brings back a bunch of spores. There are those spores again, Josh, and they turn into giant monsters with tentacles. And like a lot of alien films, and this is actually going to come up in a listener voicemail here in a little bit, 
we don't really see the aliens for most of this film. And that probably had something to do with the budget. It's a movie that was made for, I think, under $500,000. And that ingenuity really comes through. I remember, I think you saw this movie fairly recently, too. I think we were kind of in the same boat where we both really appreciated it and were impressed by it for the achievement that it is, considering that budget, maybe more than we were really satisfied by it and the story. But it does successfully build up suspense by not showing us these monsters. And that comes to really pay off at the end where you have this photographer character played by Scoot McNary, and he has been paid by his boss to find his boss's daughter in Mexico and bring her back. So they're trying to cross into the United States and trying to, of course, survive along the way. And at the end of the film, and I'm not spoiling anything here that really happens in this movie up to this point, but they do come to a gas station and the film ends with these bookends where it starts at a point later in the film after this scene takes place that we actually see at the end they're in texas and they come to a gas station that's abandoned but the lights are still on and we see just very quietly this monster appear in full view and the two characters really kind of stare and are just taken aback by it and are in awe of the monster. The handheld camera is perfect where it's just shaky enough to kind of put you there in the scene and add a little bit of immediacy. And then I love the scale of it where it's often showing the characters whole bodies in the frame in the foreground with the gas station in the middle ground and then in the background, the monster. So you really get a sense of the size of this beast. I don't know what it all means. I don't remember this movie that clearly, how it does tie all back into the beginning, whether the the monster, which then comes together with another monster, and they watch these two go through what seems to be a kind of mating ritual, if it's supposed to be some kind of metaphor for their relationship and how they want to come together and can't. But as we see them connect, they stare on at this beautiful sight. And it really is quite moving to see these objects of fear and terror be beautiful, just existing, completely uninterested in the people that are there watching them, suggesting they probably don't really need to be the objects of fear and terror that they are. But that is a scene and a visual anyway, that imagery of those beasts that in this case didn't come to attack them. Maybe that's why it stood out for me the whole film. They've been this threat and have been a legitimate threat. And yet, we finally get to see them just be these creatures just existing just like this couple. Yeah, that's by far the highlight of monsters for sure. I think Edwards made the right choice in his Godzilla from 2014 where he basically said the characters are insignificant and I'm going to concentrate on this big beast. And mm -hmm. that worked really well in that film. So, yeah, Monsters is a good pick. My number four is the assault at the beach that takes place in Edge of Tomorrow. So this is early on. It's when Tom Cruise's Weasley military PR guy, I love this character that Cruise plays, this real weasel, he gets dropped into the middle of this ill-fated invasion. It's meant to beat back the aliens who are taking over Europe in this story. This is a massive assault. There are airships, there are landing boats. Director Doug Lyman, he means to evoke the opening of Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. And I think in a lot of ways it does deserve the comparison. It's a really compelling set piece. Even before we get a glimpse of these aliens, this is an expertly choreographed battle sequence. Happens to feature the late Bill Paxton. 
The soldiers are dropped one at a time from these heliplanes, and they're connected by a wire, which I guess presumably is meant to hold them until they get to the ground. But in all the chaos, the wires get cut, and the soldiers just spin around in what's it's like this purgatory of crossfire. It's really insane. Then the aliens themselves, when we see them, they're pretty awesome. They're these spiral metallic death machines. Mm-hmm. Like they're like really bad calamari or nightmare Pokemon. <laughs> it's an ingenious character design going on here. What I like mostly about this attack, though, is that the aliens win. I mean, Cruz eats it. And not only that, it's the same thing for the Emily Blunt character who previously, you know, mm-hmm. in the opening has been set up as this this savior, this invincible warrior. So we get this scene where the aliens actually knock off the human characters we're supposed to be identifying with. So there's a shock, sense of shock to this attack scene, at least for the moment, though. You know, the whole conceit of this mm-hmm. film, of course, is that Cruz's character continually lives. Live, die, repeat. Yeah, which is what they should have called it and yes. what they did call it in the video release. So a really interesting film that has a that gets off to a fantastic start with this scene. Yeah, so that is the opening one you're going with? Because yeah, that was my dilemma. One. I thought about Edge of Tomorrow as well, and I just worried that I wasn't going to be able to pinpoint the scene. And obviously going with the opening one makes a lot of sense because we do see it from so many different perspectives and it plays out in longer variations as the film goes on. Right. And really once it starts repeating itself and jump starting again, you get the brilliance of the editing in this film. Mm -hmm. So I did think about that. But if we're talking about the attack itself, it's that first one where we're experiencing it essentially in real time with Cruz's character. It's great. My number four is from an alien attack comedy It's The World's End from Edgar Wright, and I'm going with the bathroom fight as this group of friends from high school who have fallen mostly out of touch with each other and don't seem to be getting along that well anymore anyway, decide to follow their leader, Gary, who is played by Simon Pegg, to relive one of their nights of glory or what could have been one of their nights of glory from their youths and they go on a pub crawl and this is the scene where things really start to get weird and they truly recognize that something is up beyond anything they ever would have imagined gary goes into the bathroom and he gets into a little skirmish with a punk kid a teenager there in the scene and as they fight (laughs) the kid's head ends up coming off and so he's headless this figure now a robot on the ground, and it is an alien creation who is on the ground bleeding blue blood, and he's got his head, the kid's head in his hands on the floor by one of the urinals. And this is when his group of friends decide to come in and finally confront him and say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. This isn't working, what you've gotten us into. And what's so great about it is the humor of Nick Frost character being so mad at Gary, so blinded by his rage and using this as an opportunity to get that rage off his chest that he doesn't even notice that Gary's holding a boy's head in his lap (laughs) or the blue blood on the floor. And when Gary starts to try to interject, hey, I got in a fight, this this guy's head came off he doesn't want to let him interrupt it actually takes him like 30 seconds to recognize that something is really fishy here I'm gonna kill you you need to explain this right now Andy this kid just the dog you dare change the subject he smashed my head in the trailer do you know I just spoke to your mum and not from the afterlife from Bournemouth is that real she says she hasn't spoken to you for 8 months Andy his head just came off no Gary you are not gonna wriggle out of it this time 
And then what happens is this crew, this gang of older men, ends up getting into a fight with the whole gang of teens as they come in to the bathroom. And I love the way Edgar Wright stages this scene. The choreography of it, how it is in sync with the music and the sound overall when one of the kids kicks the heater. The cuts are so in keeping and so in time with the music, which, of course, we know from a lot of Edgar Wright's films. But he does stage it almost like a gang showdown from West Side Story with five on one side and five on the other. And then the whole thing plays out in an unbroken take. It's a handheld shot, seemingly an unbroken take. I'm sure there are some cuts hidden in there, but it follows each of our main characters through their battle. And it just really utilizes the space, this confined space of the bathroom, and follows each character on their journey. And it culminates in the perfect Nick Frost elbow drop. I think I would love this scene anyway, mainly because of the humor and just how absurd it all is. But then the way Wright pulls it off visually is actually kind of stunning. Yeah, he's, you know, he's the ultimate redemption of the ADD frenetic style of filmmaking. He shows you that it can work if you're that precise and you know when to edit Mm -hmm. and when to swish the camera or swivel things. It it always And here it's a lack of edits. And it makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, you're right, because that that is what's remarkable about that scene, too, is that it backs up a little bit so that we can experience it from each character's point of view. And, yeah, that's a great one. Definitely considered might be my... Number six. I'm going to go old school again, though, for number three, and that is organizing in the town square from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956. This is a slow boil attack, but one that's always creeped me out from this film. It's well into the movie. This is after the heroes played by Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter have discovered that their friends and neighbors are being replaced by pod people. So they're hiding out in McCarthy's second floor office watching the town square. And at first, this looks like they've been there all night, so they've woken up. And it looks like, as he describes it, just like any Saturday morning. But then slowly, all the people in town who have been going about their business, they converge in unison on the square. And there's something unsettling about this massive, threatening movement. It, I feel like it almost marks the dawn of the zombie era in movies. After this, a little bit later, a truck pulls up, and then under a tarp you see that these giant pods are being distributed to the men, to the women, even to some kids, I think, in some instances. And then this guy with a megaphone... He just starts calmly assigning people to particular towns, and everyone follows the orders. It's so organized and matter-of-fact, like this well-oiled, insidious machine. So there's no big fireworks here, but when I think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this is the first scene, for some reason, that comes to mind. Just creeps me out. Well, that's another blind spot for me, and I really regret it because I've always heard good things about these movies. And when I say these movies, I mean this version you're talking about from the 1950s, Don Siegel, but also in the 70s when Philip Kaufman made it. It's very sad that the only version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers I've seen is the terrible Nicole Kidman oh, no. one that oh, came no. out, what, like five to seven years ago? It was reviewed here on the show. That's how slow of a week that was. That movie 
was terrible, and I really need to see one of these good invasion movies. See, I thought for sure you'd have the 70s one on your list because that's, I think that's a little bit more your sensibility, maybe. actually. So maybe start there. Check okay. that one out. Go backwards. All right. Donald Sutherland, I believe. Yes. A key player in the 70s version. Okay. My number three, Josh, we did not get a chance really to fight again about Prometheus during our Covenant review. So maybe we can have another kaiju versus jaeger oh, no. blowout oh no with my number three <laughs> guillermo del toro's pacific rim and to do the honors we got a great voicemail all the way from germany hello adam and josh this is katrin just from germany a uh, long-time listener first time caller <laughs> i've been basically listening to this podcast since my english was good enough so almost 10 years i think and um, you were wondering about our favorite alien attacks in movies, and I wanted to talk about Pacific Rim, which I'm not sure anymore what your opinion was on it. I think it wasn't too good, but I wanted to um, talk about how much I liked basically the first scene of the movie, because it starts with the alien attack and the destruction of San Francisco, and I liked it a lot because um, compared to other alien or monster movies, you don't have to wait for like an hour for the alien to appear. You basically get what you paid for right away. And it's really exciting because you know what the heroes are up against. Also, I really like that those are aliens from, well, from another dimension, but from the ocean. Because, let's be real, we as human people have explored way further into into space than into our own oceans. Like there's way more unknown stuff beneath our feet basically. Like there's crazy shit in the ocean. So having aliens or monsters come up from the ocean and destroy us is like a real, real fear. So I just wanted to um, point that out. Thanks. Thank you for listening for 10 years now, and thank you for that great voicemail, because I am going with the opening scene, the destruction of San Francisco from Pacific Rim. As I suggested a minute or so ago, I was a big fan of this Del Toro film, unlike my co-host, and I do really love the opening of the film. It's hard because there are so many fight scenes in this movie, and there are some that are better than others, but I love that opening as well, and I love it for some of the reasons that Katrin got into there in terms of the monster coming from the ocean. It's actually discussed or it's mentioned, I should say, in the opening voiceover where I think it's Charlie Hunnam's character who says we were looking in the wrong direction for the next big threat. He grew up looking to the stars, just like we all do. And we do explore that area. We don't explore as much the area below us. So I love that notion of the really crazy stuff going on below us. And also, as she said, it's a case where the monster is given to us right away. No surprises, not doled out in little bits and pieces in this montage that sets up the whole world, the foundation for everything we're going to see after. We see the entire beast, that first big beast, as it takes down the Golden Gate Bridge and everything really within its path. I do love everything about this opening three and a half minutes or so, this montage where it's a little bit of political fantasy as we hear a tale of all the nations of the world coming together to align against this threat. It would take something like that for all of the countries of the world to come together. And the end of it, the satirical part that Del Toro gives us where 
Hunnam's character notes that we started winning. Once we started fighting back, we figured out how to fight back. We got really good at it, he says. And so winning and these Jaegers, the monsters that we've created to fight back and these pilots are part of, they become rock stars and the monsters become toys. So this thing that was such a a threat before can actually somehow become something that's commercialized and stripped of its terror. But I think that opening three and a half minutes could be its own separate movie. If Del Toro wanted to make that film that we're getting a recap of here, that's a prequel I'd actually really want to watch. The first attack, how they did set out on the mission to fight back, the development of the whole Jaeger system, that would be interesting to me. It's interesting enough here as it is in its shortened form. And that idea of these aliens as Del Toro presents them to us, representing in some way, I mean, monster movies are always all about allegory. A lot of horror films are, and they can represent whatever unknown fear there is out there that we can collectively be afraid of. And somehow we hear about the country and the world moving on. But as it kept happening, I feel like, Josh, that that is very prescient. It is. I don't want to stretch too far to make one of your philosophical 80s movie points here. I mean, this isn't Gremlins. Go for it. This isn't Gremlins for crying out loud. Pacific Rim wishes it was Gremlins. Exactly. I just wanted to set you up for that, Josh, so you could say that. But there is something very insightful that Del Toro gets at in that opening bit here in suggesting the way we live now, where something terrible can happen, a terrible atrocity, and we will mourn, and a lot of things will happen, but then we will eventually move on. But what happens when it keeps happening. When those kind of attacks keep happening, then everything about the world you live in does change. And that's where Pacific Rim takes off. So I am not going to be the one to claim that these are not aliens. For me, they count. That'd well, be they, have right. to. They, they have yeah, to. They have to. They come but from another you might, dimension. You might, get, you might get a little flack. No, it's no. not going to come from me. Google it. Aliens <laughs> comes up all the time in any mention of Pacific Rim. You're wrong. <laughs> I'm just, hey, I, I agree with you. I considered it I'm for glad. this list because there is a no, moment I know in Pacific yeah. Rim that I really like where, and I don't know if it's from this scene. I, I don't remember it that distinctly. There's a creature where it's these wings unfurl mm-hmm. from it. And if that's the first scene or the, one of the attacks at any rate, and that is that captures what I felt like a lot of the film did miss was this sense of scale, like giving us a, the same thing Gareth Edwards did so well in mm-hmm. Godzilla is like giving us an idea of just how massive these creatures are. So there's a little bit of that in Pacific Rim. Enough for you. Not there's a lot. For me. <laughs> okay. Number two for me, I'm just going to call Succumbing to Scarlett Johansson in Under the Skin. This is the eerily brilliant 2014 film from Jonathan Glazer. It has Johansson as an alien who lures men back to this dilapidated home in Scotland where they strip naked and unwittingly step into this deadly black goo that preserves them for future horror. I love how immediately abstract these sequences get. The victims enter this house, and suddenly they're in this inky black space. There's no walls, there's no ceilings. The movie doesn't bother to explain how that happens, and for some reason, that's just refreshing to me. Eventually, even the floor gives way, and the men start sinking underneath. I'm going to go with the attack that, at least on YouTube, it's identified as victim number two. So this is the guy that she meets at a dance club. And 
It's interesting because choreography is very much at work in this sequence and really all of them. We have Johansson leading him forward while removing her clothes. He mimics her. He does the same. It's almost as if he's in this trance that he doesn't really know what he's doing. And of course, we can't forget how much Mika Levy's insinuating score adds to the atmosphere here. In this attack with this guy from the dance club, we end up seeing him once he goes underneath the goo. We see him there. And I love the perspective that Glazer provides where Johansson is above, somehow calmly walking above him. It's like the, the floor has come back and he's suspended in the goo. He sees this other naked man who looks all wrinkled. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly that guy is, I guess you'd say, deflated, right? That's that's essentially what happens. His entire body is deflated. We get this horrifying sequence afterwards. This guy's body flaps around like an empty balloon. There's a shot of like blood and innards, I guess, going down a ramp and this bizarre light show. It ends in this light show, which is like almost a snippet of the Stargate sequence in 2001, but even scarier. So one thing is for sure already from that description and what we've been talking about, you have never seen an alien attack like this in another film. It's just so distinctive. Yeah. So it's my number two as well, though I did actually find a different scene, and it's maybe the one involving the victim that your victim sees. I don't remember exactly the chronology the first, the here. Yeah, I have not gone and rewatched Under the Skin, though I'd like to. Certainly one of my favorite films from that year. No matter which scene you pick, that whole attack and that variation on the attack of the black goo, and it being an attack specifically that doesn't involve the hostile alien creature ever laying a finger right. on them. That's what I love about it, that the victim never gets touched. The victim never even comes really within about 20 feet of the alien, as you said, played by Scarlett Johansson. There is something about that seduction that is truly unique. I can't think of anything like it in cinema history yep. and think about all the films that have had these types of alien attacks. So we will link to both of them. We'll link to all of these that we have links for at our top five page at filmspotting.net. If you click on the notes for this show and you could watch both of these black goo attacks. So that brings us to our number one alien attack. What do you have? I'm going with War of the Worlds, but I'm going with Spielberg, the 2005 film. Now, Zach on Twitter, he suggested the fairy sequence, but I'm going to go with the very start of Spielberg's 9-11 influence take on the sci-fi classic. So in 2005, I think people were probably split on the way the movie did evoke the terrorist attacks of 2001, whether that was manipulative or it was too soon Mm -hmm. or whether it was, you know, added another layer to the picture. And I think now with more time passing, I at least do find that it lends this meaningful, somber element to what might otherwise have been, you know, it's still Spielberg, but a more generic blockbuster. Most of those 9-11 echoes, I feel, are in this opening scene, the first attack. This is where one of the tripods, it's standing over a crowd in the street And then everyone's gawking at it, looking up in Spielbergian wonder. Suddenly, it unleashes the attack. And we get so many Spielberg touches here. There's that shot of Cruz. He's standing next to a car, looking up at them in wonder. And we see the tripod's reflection in the windshield. So without having to cut or change perspectives, we get the whole picture right there. Then when the attack starts in earnest, we see its first wave through the monitor of a video camera that a terrified man has dropped. So just the the changing of perspective again that Spielberg does. Now, as the people flee, they get vaporized one by one. And it strikes me how personal 
Spielberg makes this attack. So the aliens aren't just haphazardly destroying the whole cityscape, but rather they're picking people off individually. And there's something especially terrifying about that. After they're vaporized, their ashes burst into the air, eventually coating Tom Cruise's face. And I think this is probably the most direct connection or visual reference that we get to the clouds of dust and rubble of 9-11. So I think this is this is really one of Spielberg's most masterful sequences in what I'd consider one of his better films. Yeah, we heard from a lot of listeners who suggested this film, and I remember reviewing it in 2005 with Sam and that conversation about 9-11 certainly coming up and being mixed overall on the film while recognizing some of those Spielbergian touches and there are multiple scenes as you pointed out that you could have gone with here I think it's a really good choice it's a movie I probably need to revisit at some point appropriate perhaps that my number one is Spielberg as well and I have to say thank you to longtime listener friend of the show Brett Merriman he was there just when I needed him most today when I was struggling to really just pinpoint a good final choice and it ended up being my number one choice when he sent it over to me it's an attack though not a fight except in the form of a mother fighting whatever force is out there that seems intent on taking her son away from her it's from close encounters of the third kind and it's barry's abduction her son being kidnapped by these unseen aliens and you may recall that when we did our top five spielberg scenes three or four years ago, I think it was. This was actually my number one then. I read this line from Spielberg where he said that beautiful but awful light, just like fire coming through the doorway, and he's very small, and it's a very large door, and there's a lot of promise or danger outside that door. And I love that concept of promise and danger and that mystery and that seeming like it's such a fundamental element to Spielberg and his work. We are often, I think, like Barry in that scene where we see some of the visuals in these Spielberg movies and some of the adventures that he presents to us. And just like his characters, we want to we want to go off on them. We want to be taken away and be swept up with it. The light that we see that Spielberg references there that the mom closes the door on, it shows up in multiple ways throughout the scene in the fireplace. At one point, the boy like a boy would be. A young boy, he's always drawn to it. He can't stay away. And even something as subtle as some clanking sound coming from a vent and Spielberg putting the camera down on the ground, on the floor, and doing a little track forward to the sound becomes super intense. And the great scene where the kitchen is in complete chaos, and then, of course, it all does culminate with that doggy door, more light coming through, and the boy crawling right out, and the mother frantically trying to pull him back in. And really, that isn't the culmination, because the true culmination is so gorgeous. It's that final shot as the mom then goes outside and chases whatever that spacecraft is that goes off into the distance this beautiful stormy sky that's so evocative it's so dark with these purple hues and then that orange light again where the ship is off on the horizon and then eventually that goes away too as the mom chases it it just disappears and somehow everything goes back to being serene serene and quiet except of course it's this horrific scene where a mother loses her son and we as viewers aren't sure that he's ever going to see his mom again or that she's ever going to see him it's just one of the all-time great spielberg scenes and one in which as i said it's an alien attack a hostile alien effort 
that doesn't actually involve us ever seeing those aliens. No, kudos, Brett. That's awesome. I I thought about Close Encounters and, you know, consider those aliens benign and didn't even consider that sequence, which is amazing. And it is the silence at the end that mm-hmm. really makes it hit home, I think. Also, have doggy doors ever been a good thing in movies? It's <laughs> a good point. I mean, no, right? I can't someone's, think of one case. Someone's always coming at you through them or taking things out of them that, you know, who needs them? I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you. Those are our top five alien attacks. Do you have some honorable mentions that you want to mention? Well, so yeah, the the ones I mentioned at the very top for things that came to destroy us, those are my main honorable mentions. But I did think about Cloverfield and the host, though I think those are distinctly not aliens. Many people mention those. So I didn't want to go that way. Um, Predators, you know I like Predators. Not so big a fan of Predator, but Predators. (laughs) Only you. But Predators. (laughs) Only Josh. Well, let me ask you this. Does Predator have alien dogs attacking? No. Does Predators? Yes. That's all you need to know. And I didn't consider alien attacks on other aliens. Otherwise, I would have gone with the earworm sequence in Wrath of Khan. That one. A Star Trek movie that you don't even like. You were yeah, going well, to consider. Well, that was part of its problem, too, is it's not very good. But that sequence, man, that haunted oh, me yeah. since I oh, no. saw it as I know. a kid. I remember it very, very vividly. I'm with you there. So I considered Edge of Tomorrow and War of the Worlds Starship Troopers. Almost yeah, made my list. Yeah, Hard to one. pick one scene. I think I maybe would have gone with Michael Ironside getting his legs ripped off. I don't know why. There's just something so <laughs> gleefully gruesome about that. And that kind of sums up the entire Paul Verhoeven movie. Attack the Block, which made your previous list. One I almost went with here. Of course, I'm a big fan of J.J. Abrams' Super 8. The Mist has some good candidates. Mm. And Cloverfield may not work, but 10 Cloverfield Lane has a good alien attack. I think we can say at this point, it's been out long enough, I'm going to say okay. here, spoilers be damned. It certainly qualifies. I'm glad you mentioned the host because I almost went down that exact same path and confusing things even more. I loved that it was a nice counter to Pacific Rim because it's another kaiju. I mean, it's a Japanese monster. Yeah. It's very clearly a kaiju. And what I love about it in contrast to Pacific Rim is that I think you complained about this, all the dark, rainy fight scenes we get there. In The Host, when we see that monster for the first time, it's along the riverbank, it's a nice summer day, and that monster is just out there in the world with the characters and ripping into them and doing whatever else it wants to do on this little rampage. But you're right. It's a kaiju. It's a monster. It's not an alien creature. It was man-made, though unintentionally. It doesn't come from another world or another dimension. Technically not eligible for this list. Correct. Okay. That's our top five, and that is our show. Please send your favorite alien attacks or any other feedback you have for us to feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you'll find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We have a best of 84 deathmatch going on there. The Terminator versus This is Spinal Tap. Also, if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 4, Everything, Everything, a teenager who's lived a sheltered life because she's allergic to everything, falls for the boy who moves in next door. And That's uh, the story of Debbie and my courtship. I is would. it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I wooed her with Allegra. <laughs> 
<laughs> you were just complaining about your allergies earlier. So exactly. that, that is fitting. Alien Covenant also out. The latest from Ridley Scott. I can't recommend it, I think, the way you are, Josh, but I can recommend that Michael Fassbender is worth seeing. So I suppose that means it's a recommendation, I'm recommending man. the movie. You're in. You're no, in. No, not going to go that far. Out in limited release, Obit, an inside look at life on the New York Times obituaries desk. Paris Can Wait. It stars Diane Lane and Alec Baldwin, directed by Eleanor Coppola, who gave us, maybe last gave us, I'm not sure about her entire filmography, but 1991 Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse. Now, next week, we are filling in the gaps of our year-by-year countdowns, and next week, it's the top five of 84, along with our review of James Cameron's Terminator, A Sacred Cow conversation what's your favorite film of 84 or one you're afraid might go unmentioned next week leave us a short voicemail and we may use it 312-264-0744 or you can of course just send us an mp3 file feedback at filmspotting.net Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dussault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you like what you heard, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.